we are, we are. I'm on early in the service, so really, if we get derailed time-wise, it is entirely on me. <laughs> Which, to be honest, is pretty standard anyway. Alrighty, um, if the kids would like to go out, Rach and other willing and excited and, and energised volunteers, that's exactly how you describe Rowan, isn't it? Oh, yeah, well, there is that. <laughs> there is that. You do get to entertain small children, which, um, yeah, have fun. So um, feel free to head over to the Oval and um, have some fun and games. Um, Karen mentioned that there is colouring and activity sheets um, for kids if they want it. Um, it's also there for the adults, um, and Karen would agree with me um, when, when I say this, that uh, there is some, there's some reasonably complex colouring back there. So if you're somebody who likes to have your hands busy while you are listening so that you can concentrate better, feel free to grab a hold of that stuff um, and, and colour and word search to your heart's content. Um, but yeah, welcome this morning. I'm wearing my clown pants, which saving grace have a pocket so I can do this um, please feel free if if you feel that what I'm talking about is feeling a little bit heavy a little bit bit hard just gaze at the pants for a moment and remember that God loves you and um, and he is good um, but uh, we are going to um, I'm going to talk about some fairly hard things today um, sort of quite visceral things. So um, if you happen to have small children in the room, there might be points where you just kind of, just awareness that, that I'm, I'm going to be a bit um, graphic, yeah. Innocent little Lillian. Um, yeah. Oh, darling. Okay. <laughs> and I have asked James for the aircon to go on, so if you're struggling like I am, it will go on. Ah. So, yes. All righty. So, um, as mentioned, this is, um, this is kind of a deep dive into communion and, and what it looks like and what it means, um, but coming at it from quite an Old Testament perspective, so we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the Old Testament because that's my happy place. Um, but this is also, it's less of a sermon and more of a kind of extended devotion uh, sort of based on my own investigations that have come from um, looking at what does a life of worship look like, what does it mean to worship with our whole lives, um, and so through small groups, through some stuff at work, and then through some of my personal reflections, um, I was looking at worship through the ages, and this part of it just kind of stood out for me, the kind of connection um, between uh, the old sacrificial system and communion, and it's something that we don't necessarily focus on, especially because we don't often teach specifically on communion, because we do it most weeks here at Glen Osmond, we normally do um, a quick little sort of three-minute, five-minute introduction. Sometimes we look at it a little bit deeper, um, but we haven't really dedicated a lot of time to looking at what communion actually means and looks like. And I was going to do a word cloud. I totally forgot. Um, so that was going to be your participation, but I don't need that. So I've got all the thoughts. Um, <laughs> But I'm also ready to be, um, because it's a, a thought and process, I'm ready to be challenged on it um, to a point. Um, 
I will cry if you challenge me too hard. Um, but also, um, I don't want this to come across as a, I've got all the answers and I know what I'm talking about, but actually that I'm in the middle of all of this as well. So, um, so any challenges I throw out are challenges that I'm working through as well. So please don't feel that I'm like, I've got it worked out, you need to come along with me, or that I assume that you don't have it worked out. It's just that this is where we're going. Anyway, I'm going to get in. So, like I said, it's been a whole sort of Old Testament, New Testament survey, sort of looking at worship across the whole of the Bible. Um, and so there's worship tied into this um, because this, the whole sacrificial system is a method of worship. And so um, we're going to begin uh, before the Bible actually even does. So, in, um, so obviously the Bible begins in Genesis 1, but before Genesis 1, when God created the earth, there was the Trinity existing um, before the creation. So the Trinity is a perfect, loving, worshipping relationship between Father, Son and Spirit and in his abundance of all that is good and holy and worthy and loving, that overflowed into his desire to create the heavens and the earth and share in all of his abundance with his creation. So, so it came out of a loving perfect place that came out of wanting to share that with with a creation with somebody else because it was just so overflowing so our word worship comes from an old english word that means to ascribe worth so and that is what the members of the trinity were perpetually doing with one another they were always beholding the wonder of the worth of the godhead and it's not hinky or weird or self-indulgent but it's entirely and totally deserved so when God went about his creating and declared it good, and humans very good, his creation knew of nothing else except a perfect world and a perfect relationship with God and perfect worship. So if you were to ask Adam and Eve uh, what it meant to worship with their whole lives, they would have been utterly confused. There weren't any rituals or worship services or quiet times. There was just one life lived out as God's people in God's place in God's presence under his rule and authority. Thank you, Vaughan Roberts, for that neat little thing that you guys will all have heard millions of times from me before. So, but then we have the fall. So if worship is about ascribing worth, then it's easy to see where worship goes wrong. Adam and Eve think that, they'll gain from, that what they'll gain from the fruit is of greater worth than what they have with God. And that's a comment that uh, Mike Cosper made in his book, Oh, now it's gone. Mike Cosper and... Oh, it'll come to me. I quote him a few times. It's an excellent book. Kylie also would recommend it. Uh, it's gone. Their independence is more important to them than trusting God to be entirely good to them. So their question actually switched from how can I be right with God to how can my life be made easier or better? Or, in more simple terms... What does God want versus what do I want? And we live the outcome of that switch. Our worship shifted from God to ourselves. We decided we knew better about what was good for us, that our own desires for ourselves were our highest aim, and we transferred our worship away from what the only one who deserves it to literally everything else. And things are never the same after this. Adam and Eve are rejected from the garden. But just as Adam ceaselessly worshipped God in Eden, in the wild his worship continues unabated. 
but disconnected from the God who made him. Praise still pours forth out of the overflow of the Trinity, though missing its proper home. That again is Mike Put Cosper. Adam and Eve's son murders his brother because his worship was deemed less worthy and his heart was exposed. From Genesis 3 to 12, we see that our worship needs a new place to land, and if not God, it lands on idols. We crave the empty space to be filled, looking to celebrity, wealth, family, sex, pleasure, sports, work, friendships, but being ultimately unfulfilled. So as Cain and Abel show us, even religiosity is unfulfilling if our heart is wrong. So what we then see as the Bible unfolds, the sinfulness of humanity and all the ways in which it, um, which it appears. And there are two profound statements that I find totally compelling. The first one is Genesis 6-5, and we've got that one up on the screen, hopefully. Yes! The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. That is just... It just... Like, just gets you in the guts. That was immediately before uh, he sent the flood um, and spoke to Noah about the ark. There's another situation in 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 7, where it says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. It had been captured and taken away to a foreign land, so they went to get it back. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio, probably, was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen, sorry, the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. It seems a little harsh, but R.C. Sproul, when he wrote on this particular passage, said, Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt. God said no. That's the situation that we're in, that we think that we're a better alternative than lots of other things. And God says, no, you are so, so filthy that I'd rather the Ark of the Covenant fall on the ground than be touched by an unworthy human. Two pretty convicting comments. The scriptures are abundantly clear that we are entirely sinful people, alienated from an entirely holy God. Nothing we can do can bridge the gap. Uh, I heard an illustration once where it was talked about uh, if you were presented with a cup of poison, you wouldn't drink it because you know that it's a cup of poison and it would harm you. But if somebody was to tip out that cup of poison but leave just, just, the, just the traces of poison and fill that glass up with water and offered, to it, offered it to you, you probably still wouldn't drink it. <laughs> there are still traces of poison there. No matter what you do, there are traces of poison on that cup, especially if it's a timber cup that kind of absorbs stuff. It doesn't matter what we do, there are always traces of that poison in us that cannot 
be in the holiness of God's presence. But what we constantly see, so we've got this horrible situation on the one hand, what we constantly see in the Old Testament is God making a way. God always showing his grace. God clothing Adam and Eve to hide their embarrassing nakedness and giving a blessing with the curse. Giving Cain a mark of protection. Saving Noah and his family from the flood. Making his promises to Abraham. Bringing his people out of Egypt. The Exodus is where God shows his dominance over all other gods and shows up for his people. He's present with them as never before. The God of Israel is a God who shows up, shows his power over the other gods, crushes his enemies and rescues his people. He isn't far off. He's right in front of them, day and night, in a billowing cloud of smoke and steam and a bright burning column of fire. This God dwells with his people. Mike Cosper again. He has displayed his grace by rescuing them and declaring them to be his people, but not so that they can form a holy huddle. As Adam was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, Israel was supposed to be a beacon of worship to the nations, to ascribe worth to God and to invite others in. The nation of Israel is supposed to be God's jewel, the shining example of what a lifetime of obedience to God and his glorious blessings looked like. And so he gave Moses instructions that he shared with the people in Exodus 20 to 40. I recommend reading this section for yourself, but it is pretty weighty and it involves a lot of repeated instructions on how to build the temple. <laughs> in case you forget to read Exodus 20 to 40, here's a short video to help us explain what, to help explain what's important to know, and they do it much better than I do, so I'm just going to let them do it. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half, where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel, along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two acts together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere, they find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. Here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence, because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence. They had this close relationship with him, and it was good. But humanity rebels, and the relationship is fractured, and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them. And it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws that includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because 
There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Although, if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and His power when He rescued them from slavery. And, and they agreed to obey the terms. But then they refused to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really, really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up, because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me, and don't worship Bible statues. Right, and so here we are immediately after agreeing to the covenant. They're throwing this ritual party, and they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what, this is, this is not going to work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something? Yeah, it does seem odd. But this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions. And he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it, and in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence, but he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz in to the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. Excellent. Clear? All good? We're okay? So the two different parts of the law that God gives ways to do it and a place to do it, um, but God also cares about the minutiae of our lives. The laws are intensely complex and have all sorts of things to say about familial relationships, about um, community relationships, about how to farm, how to, how to live out your life. And so it shows us that God actually cares about those things. He's not just in this relationship for what he gets with us. He's also worried and concerned with how we treat each other and how we live out our day-to-day -day lives. Um, so both parts are of profound interest to him and that has never changed. God doesn't just want our sacrifices. We see this later on in scripture. He wants a heart for him and his people as well. And so we see this verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And that's how that summarises the laws that he's given. Now we are going to spend some time in Leviticus now 
because this is where it all starts to land. And again, I'm going to hand over to the Bible project. Now remember the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of this world. And that's great, but it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't come in, and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here, at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. And these are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. Here's what we need to know and understand. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for us to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure and why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart and it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids, but they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, but 
simply coming into contact with these things makes you <laughs> impure. They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure. What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now. And odds are there's a lot of sin happening goes unnoticed, the people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice is explained in the next chapter, where God says the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leads the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's a very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're going to ignore you or they're going to turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary. And he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite the corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. But Israel's still at Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. They need a place to live. Yes, the land God promised to Abraham. And so the journey to that land is what the next book of the Bible is all about. Hi, this is Tim. You can. Yeah, perfect. So I hope that sort of made things a little clearer. Um, one of the, uh, it talked about how, um, how Moses wasn't able to go into the tent at the beginning of the, or at the end of the book of Exodus. Um, but by the end of the book of Leviticus, he's able to enter the tent because the, the people have been made pure and so he's no longer being repelled. It's a bit like um, magnets. If you put two magnets that have the same polarity together, there is nothing that you can do to make them. The stronger magnet always repels the other. They can't be in the same space. But as soon as you turn one of them around, they actually stick together. Isn't that sweet? And so then they can be in the same presence because one is turned the other way. I love it. Um, this is where, <laughs> on that nice light note, this is where it gets a bit 
graphic. So if you have small children that you want to, it's, it's about animal sacrifice. It is from the Bible, but you may want to distract them um, because sometimes the Bible doesn't say very nice things. So I have an audio because David Suchet has the most beautiful voice I've ever heard. And so he's going to read to us Leviticus 1. David Suchet is not someone from our church. He is an actor. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from a herd, you are to offer a name without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering, and cut it into pieces. The sons of the Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat of the wood that is burning. You are to wash the internal organs and the heads with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of burns, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Might be an aroma pleasing to the Lord, but it probably would have been a, an aroma pretty revolting to humans. Um, so there's death like that happening day in, day out, for every Israelite for more than 1,500 years. And if it weren't for Jesus, we'd still be doing it. 2,000 years later. Billions and billions, even trillions, of innocent, perfect animals literally ripped apart and destroyed. 
And it still wasn't enough to actually pay for our sinfulness. But God accepted it as payment. Huge, huge holiness met with huge, huge sinfulness, only by the grace of God and his love for his creation. Worship in Israel was a noisy, I'm thinking of all the animals that are freaking out as they're in amongst pens with other animals or as they're being killed. It was bloody. There was blood being splashed around all the time and I have read multiple times. I can't say that I have paid every ounce of attention every time, but in all the instructions on how, what to do in the temple and how to build it and how to offer sacrifice, I've not yet come across an instruction on how to clean the temple or the altar. And so as far as I'm aware, the blood accumulated and so it would have been smelly and flies and gross, like just revolting and revolting. Um, and it was costly. It's expensive to bring perfect animals every day or uh, to, to buy animals, especially at high prices that you'll be paying at the temple. So it cost the Israelites every time they went there. Um, it became a daily thing. Um, it became a ritual. And so it became easier to bear. But it wouldn't, if we were to step into that now, it would be horrifying and it would be immensely visceral. It was a noisy, bloody and costly thing. The temple protects from the fire and destruction that can be the only outcome when sin meets holiness. And so we've got, again, that repelling of the magnet. <laughs> Way to lighten the mood. Thanks, Izzy. <laughs> that repelling of the magnet where if, if we're not doing those things, we cannot be in that presence. But we do see some light moments in amongst all of that. So Psalm 51 shows us David grieving after he has, um, after he's had his dealings with Bathsheba. Um, he understood. He was a man after God's own heart. Uh, he was a jerk. Uh, he did some pretty awful things. Just ask Sarah. It's her. <laughs> She's learning on that one. Uh, but he was repentant. So worship is not just about doing the right things in the temple. It's about recognising God's ownership over our whole lives. So David made awful mistakes and was not a particularly nice human being, especially to women. But he understood the need for genuine repentance and a renewed submission to God's will. God's desires instead of his own. So David's desires led him into a dangerous place, as do ours. God's desires showed him the path to relationship. But David was only one of a few. And so, as we know, the Israelites longed for the future one who would make it all as it should be. The promised Messiah who would lead them to the perfect land where they would all be in perfect relationship with their God, protected from their enemies and living in abundant comfort. But their sinful eyes missed the Messiah when he came. Ruth Cho Simons in one of her books, Beholding and Becoming, quotes William Blake. He said, we become what we behold. For humanity, that has be meant that we became selfish. We beheld ourselves and we became blinded to our sin. When we were the measure of what should be worshipped, of course we weren't the problem. Everyone else was, because we were the measure. 
Because as I mentioned at the beginning, our focus had become not how can I be made right with God, but how can my life be made easier or better? But like us today, the Jews were so busy looking inward to their own comfort that they didn't recognise that the God they were paying lip service to was in their midst. They were so far from worshipping the God they claimed to be beholding that they didn't recognise a true beholder when he was standing in front of them. They'd forgotten what God looked like, what holiness looked like, what a life of true worship looked like. And Romans 1, which we've got coming up, says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. We got it? Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul David Tripp says, Human beings by their very nature are worshippers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. Jesus resolved all of these things. He is the only person who has ever shown total fidelity to God, the only one who could intercede on our behalf, the perfect prophet, priest and king. But while everyone else was looking the other way for the man who was going to triumphantly overthrow the Romans and return the people of Israel to a position of autonomy in the land that God had given them, Jesus was the only person who seemed to remember that God had promised that whilst Eve's son would crush the head of the serpent, that the serpent would bite his heel. In his suffering, Jesus cries out the first words of Psalm 22. And you might remember that on the cross, he yells out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then not long after, he declares, It is finished. So listen for the first and the last lines of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. 
You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Honour him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And so when... The Israelites, the Jews who were standing around at Jesus' feet, heard him say, My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? They would have remembered. It's a psalm. It's a song that they sing as part of their worship. It's just like, which we will be singing later, if I was to say to you, how deep the Father's love for us. You know what comes. You know the rest of it. So anyone who's had any Old Testament education in Israelite history will have heard that first line and know what is coming and know what Jesus is referring to. And so we see in this instant that the suffering service servant becomes the first worship leader. The songs we sing, this is Mike Cosper again, the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the faith we confess, all of it is an echo and an amen to the perfect worship offered to God by his son. At the point of Jesus' death, the curtain is torn and we are no longer outsiders, but intimately involved in the Trinity. The Father cares for us, the Son intercedes for us, perfecting our pathetic, sin-stained efforts, and the Spirit dwells in us. And that is where our worship begins, from that place where we recognise that we should be ashes, but instead we are a temple to the living God himself. The Son lives in us. That holiness and danger is in us, this imperfect exterior. But the image that I come away with is not of Jesus standing triumphant. This is no Rambo who's coming up over the hill with a headband on and he's got like a little bit of blood on his eyebrow, but actually he's, you know, all ready to go. What I see is broken, bloody, exhausted, tortured, terrified, abandoned man. Not a heroic God warrior, but the lamb that we see in Revelation. And there are so many reminders throughout the whole of the scriptures, but particularly in Revelation, that it's the lamb that is in the presence of God. The sacrifice, the bloody, visceral, costly, noisy, horrible, horrible. Anyone who's seen the Passion of the Cross, horrible situation that our Lord has been subjected to, that that's the man that stands for us, who bears our burdens, who takes punch after punch. That's the man who stands and God sees in our place. 
What does this have to do with communion? (laughs) Before he went to the cross, Jesus hosted the Last Supper with his disciples, the Passover meal where he changed the course of history. Matthew 26, we've got this on the screen hopefully. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now immediately before this, he'd said, somebody's going to betray me, and they're all gone, not us, surely. And then there's this tiny little three-verse statement, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. Unsurprisingly, in this instance, the disciples didn't comprehend the magnitude of what he was doing because they didn't have the events of the rest of the New Testament to help them yet. But I would argue that while we have the New Testament and so have a very different picture of Jesus' role on earth, that we often forget to understand it in light of the Old Testament, which is what I've tried to do today. And so we are no less sinful, and God is no less holy now. His actions in Jesus are the only reason that this is not our reality today, that we are not repelled, but we are in fact embraced. For the Jews, worship was visceral. It was noisy, revolting, dirty, so smelly. Thinking of burning feathers, all the animal poo, Death was very, very real. God's holiness was on display. Our replacement was Jesus on the cross. Deep suffering, excruciating, humiliating, and so very undeserved. Our communion that remembers it, a tiny piece of artisanal bread and a tiny glass of sweet fruit juice. So sanitised, so clean, so pretty. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It is to be enjoyed and rejoiced over and something to be thankful for. We don't have to dwell in that stinky, noisy, traumatic place anymore. And we never will. But sometimes I wonder if that's where our thinking stops. That communion is a nice symbol that reminds us that Jesus died and we no longer have to pay for our sins, but is also a great, very competitive, I have to admit, snack for the kids after church, and sometimes before the service is even really over. Um, The pull apart of the magnets, the loving bit, the restoration of life bit, that's what we kind of think about, and that's often how we talk about it with our children too. But how often do we consider the push of the magnets bit? the true cost that the Israelites counted and that Jesus bore for all time, the total holy repelling any ounce of sin from its presence, and that without Jesus we could kill every single innocent creature and it would never be enough. I don't want to be depressed about that though. This is not meant to be a guilt trip. I'm asking us to expand our thinking from a small communion, little tiny thing, to an enormous, all-encompassing, 
sacrifice and redemption. I'm wanting us to lift our eyes so that we can be even more awestruck than we already are at what God offers us and what we accept each time we take communion. That we can confess and offer reorientation. That we can declare again, not how can I have an easier life? How can my life be better? How can I get what I want? But how can I be made right with God? How can I do what he wants? So as we take communion today, I invite you to consider those things, to think through uh, what it is that um, has potentially um, come to mind, uh, some of the big things that might be the things that you know are uh, the things that Jesus is paying for in your life, uh, for the things that he has taken the consequence of um, condemnation away from you for, that you might like to think on those things and offer them up and thank God for his sacrifice for you. Uh, but also to thank God for the fact that this is how we get to celebrate. This is how we get to remember um, that we don't have to slaughter animals or uh, fundraise for them, but that actually we can take very small tokens and be reminded of how deeply meaningful they are. And so in your own time, if you would like to come up and take the elements, you may are welcome to eat the bread in your own time, um, but we will drink the cup together because, of course, he brought us together in doing all those things too. So um, please come when you're ready.